If you have your Bibles with you, I invite your attention, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. As you know, we're working our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher in the whole world, recorded in the greatest book in all the world, addressing some of the greatest issues and situations and circumstances that we find in life that we are encountering every day that we live. And so today we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26, Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 26. The title of the message is, It's What's Inside That Counts. I hope that you received your bulletin as you came in today. You'll find an outline there that will help you to keep up with the message as we work our way through these verses of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit adultery, and whoever commits, uh, or you shall not commit murder, excuse me, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Before we get into the message today, there are two or three things that I want to point out to you about the verses of scripture. Uh, notice first of all the expression you have heard. Look at it in verse 20, it says, for I say to you, but in verse 21, he said, you have heard. Look down at verse 27, you have heard. Again, look down at verse 33, you have heard. Verse 38, you have heard. Verse 43, you have heard. And what I'm trying to point out to you here by referring to those different verses of scripture is that the only ones who had copies of the Old Testament were the rabbis, the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees. The common people of that day probably could not read and write. They certainly could not afford a, a, a copy of the scriptures. They were all done by hand. The printing presses weren't invented that time. So everything had to be copied by hand. So it was very expensive to own a copy. And so the common person of Jesus' day did not have a copy of what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And so all they knew about the Old Testament scriptures and what they had been taught was taught to them verbally. So Jesus says, you have heard this, you have heard this, you have heard this. But then notice something else in the passage of scripture beginning uh, with verse 20. He says, for I say to you, in verse 22, but I say to you, verse 26, truly I say to you, verse 28, but I say to you, Verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 39, but I say to you. 
Verse 44, but I say to you. And so Jesus uh, is not taking away from the law. He's not taking away from their teachings when they were teaching the Old Testament scriptures. But he was giving to them the, the, the meaning of what they were hearing. The scribes and the Pharisees had come up with a long list of what was known as traditions. And they were teaching the traditions, their interpretations of what the Old Testament scriptures were saying according to their own interpretations of it. And oftentimes it was far beyond uh, what the scriptures was, was teaching and was saying. And so Jesus was saying, you've heard what they have said, but I am saying to you, and he takes them back to the original scriptures and to the original meaning of what God was saying. Remember the other day of the other Sunday when we were talking about our Lord's relationship to the laws and the prophets. He said, I didn't come to take away the law. I didn't come away to do away with the prophets and what they were saying. I came to fulfill them. So Jesus didn't do away with the law. Did Jesus believe in the scriptures? You better believe he did. He believed them. It was through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, that inspired the scriptures to begin with. And so Jesus was taking the people back to the original meaning of what God was saying to them. And the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken it and had just ripped it apart and added so much to their own traditional sayings. And Jesus was saying, you have heard, but I say to you. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had to quote other people and other writings and other sources, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, I say to you, and he had the authority to do so. He was, was and is the son of God. And no wonder when you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people were amazed and astonished at the teachings of Jesus because he did not speak as the scribes and the Pharisees, but he spoke with authority, with authority. And so today, as we begin to look into the passage of Scripture having to do with murder and anger and reconciliation and righteousness, Jesus has taken us back to the origin of the truth. Back in the year of 1922, on November the 4th, 1922, Howard Carter discovered the tomb of King Tut. King Tut was the Egyptian pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. And uh, Carter, when they opened uh, the, the tomb of King Tut, uh, they found unbelievable artifacts of the 18th dynasty in Egypt. This was one of them. This is the sarcophagus that contained the body of King Tut. It's gold. The outward appearance, it, it glistens, it glitters, it's valuable. But when they lifted the lid from that sarcophagus, they found another one. And they lifted that lid, and they found another one. And when they lifted the third lid of the coffin or the sarcophagus, this is what they found. They found the body of King Tuck. It was wrapped in gold cloth, and this was the mask that covered the face of King Tuck. I googled uh, King Tut's uh, face uh, piece uh, uh, as to its value. And uh, it, the, the source that I found said that this golden mask of King Tut was worth $7 million. $7 million. When we were in, in, uh, in Cairo and in Egypt, uh, we went to the Cairo Museum. And we stood in the face, in the front of this, this mask of King Tut. 
there were two armed guards with machine guns standing on either side of them. They didn't want you to touch it, bother it, just look at it. It's precious. It's gold. I mean, the outside of it is beautiful and it's valuable. But when they lifted the, the mask, this is what they saw. The old, decaying, deteriorating bones of what was left of King Tut. And although he was one of the wealthiest people who ever lived in his day and time, covered with all of this gold and precious jewels and everything, it's not what's on the outside that is so important as is what's on the inside. It's what's on the inside. And I believe that this is what Jesus is saying to us as we get into this passage of Scripture, that you can give a facade, you, you can give the outward appearance of being a very godly person, a very righteous person, certainly a very religious person. And I'm not trying to discredit, nor was our Lord trying to discredit or discrediting anything that we would do on the outside as long as what's on the inside is correct. If what's on the inside of you is not right with God, then it doesn't matter what else you might do. It's not what's on the outside that counts, it's what's on the inside that counts. Jesus said on one occasion, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and did we not do this and that in your name? He said, depart from me, I never knew you. He said, Jesus said, there would be those who will honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When asked what the two greatest commandments of all were, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, all your being. Second commandment, likewise, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God with your heart. Love him with your heart. When you get over into the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, you have what I call the woe chapter, W-O-E, where Jesus pronounced about 10 or 12 different woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees and had the audacity to call them hypocrites. A hypocrite, the word hypocrite comes from the practice years ago when one person would play the role of several different characters and the way that you knew that he had changed character was that he would hold a mask up in front of his face. And when he portrayed that kind of character, he would lay that mask down, pick up another one, and portray another one. So the word hypocrisy means two-faced. Giving one appearance to individuals of what you are, but in reality, you're something else. And so Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was saying, it's what's on the inside that really counts. So as we look at these verses of scripture, there are four major ideas that I want to pursue with you this morning as we think about what's on the inside that really counts. And we, first of all, want to address the idea of righteousness. Look at verse 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, first of all, that your righteousness, if you're going to be the kind of righteous individual that is acceptable to God, must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, what was there about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that was so terrible? 
that Jesus in essence was pronouncing condemnation upon and saying, your righteousness has to be better than that. I mean, had you looked at the outside activity and the appearance of the scribes and Pharisees, you would have put your stamp of approval upon them. Those men walk with God, man. Look, look at all that they do. They're righteous people. But there are four descriptive terms that describe the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the first one is this. It was external. External. Again, in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Now he's already talked to them about, uh, he said, you're like white uh, washed tombs. In other words, when they, when they buried people in those days, they didn't have tombstones and monuments like we have. But most of the times they, they would whitewash the outside of the tomb. And when you look, it would be white and it would reflect the sun. But on the inside, of course, would be the rotting, decaying remains of whoever was buried there. And he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you're just, you're just a hypocrite. Because you give the appearance outwardly that you're righteous, but you're like whitewashed sepulchers. Beautiful on the outside, clean looking, but on the inside you're full of rotten bones and rottenness and uncleanliness. And so what Jesus was con condemning here was the outward appearance that did not have an inward condition to back it up. Not only was it external, but secondly, it was partial, partial. Going back to Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You see, they were so strict and legalistic in what they were trying to do that they would tithe even a leaf off of, off of a, a, an herb. He said, you, you tithe what? You, you, well, you, you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin. They would take a, a, a mint or, and, and they would say, well, okay, every tenth leaf belongs to the Lord. So there's, there's one leaf, another leaf, another leaf, seven, eight, nine. Oh, the tenth leaf, that's the Lord's. We set that aside. I mean, they were that particular. That, <laughs> it was just ridiculous the way they were doing and Jesus is saying, Look, you're so careful to tie the little things and you neglect the more important things. And he said, like mercy and justice and faithfulness. He said, you blind guides, you swallow a gnat and, and you, you, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. I think you talk about, did Jesus have a sense of humor? I think when they, they heard that, they, they would fall in the aisles laughing. Swallowing a camel, straining at a gnat, I mean, that's ridiculous. But that's how particular they were and only doing partial of what the law required. It was external, it was partial, it was redefined, redefined. In Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, Jesus said, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. 
Notice he said, you're an expert setting aside. The, he said, you set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Oh, setting aside God's laws so that you can say, well, this is our tradition. This is what we do. This is our custom. This is culture. Verse 10 says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever I have, would, I would help you, that's been set aside to help you, is Corban. What does that mean? We see back in those days, they didn't have social welfare like we do, and Obamacare, and all those kinds of things. A family was expected to take care of each of, uh, each of their members. And a mother and father would take care of a child. And when that child became old, uh, uh, an adult, and the parents became old, then it fell the responsibility of the children to take care of their parents. And there was a law that said you are to do that. But then the scribes and Pharisees came up with this idea that was called Corban. C-O-R-B-A-N, Corban. And it means a gift. And they were saying, well... If your mom and dad are in need and, and you're supposed to help them and you have set aside X number of dollars to help them, well, to get out of helping them, you would say, well, that's Corbin. That belongs to the Lord. And so we can't help you. Good luck. That's what, that's what they were saying. So they were redefining the law. They were setting aside the commandments of God and instead following their tradition. And then the fourth idea was that they were self-centered, self-centered. Matthew 6, verse 2, Matthew 23, verses 5 and 7. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward and they have it in full. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and strengthen the tassels of their garments. Now, what in the world is a phylactery? Well, if you've ever seen a, a picture of a, a Jewish rabbi or a devout Jew, uh, a, a phylactery was a, a little box in which were copies of certain verses of Scripture. And uh, to this box would be attached a piece of leather and they would tie it around their foreheads. Or they would have a, a bracelet. They would take a, a box and put uh, copies of scripture in that little box and they would strap it onto their wrist. And so they would have these always, the scripture says, always keep the word of the Lord before you. That's how they interpreted that. That's how they kept it before them. They put it on their foreheads or they kept it on their wrists so that they could hold it up and see. A, a total misunderstanding uh, uh, and, and, a, and a, uh, of what it meant to keep the word of the Lord before them. And, and he says, when, when you give your tithe and when you, when you fast and do these things, don't do it so other people can see you and then pat you on the back and say, oh my, what a wonderful, righteous, holy, godly person you are. Oh, he said, you know, and they would come to the synagogue and trumpets would be blown to announce, man, listen, and they wouldn't put the, that soft money, you know, they wanted it in coins and the, the little uh, vessels that they would throw them in. They would put their money in there and boy, that make all that kind of noises fall down to the bottom. People, listen to what he gave. Man, he, he gave a great amount of money. And, and it, so they were self-centered. They wanted the praise of men. And so it's not that the Lord is opposed to, 
people giving or, uh, or how much you give. Uh, the Bible doesn't try to cover up how much a person gives. Uh, th- think about uh, Barnabas in the book of Acts. Well, it says that he sold a piece of land and gave the money to the church to be distributed to the poor. And then it says on another occasion in the book of Acts that the people would come to the place of worship and they would lay their offerings at the feet of the apostles so that that money could be given to assist the poor. So it's not that God is opposed to our giving publicly. It's just that you don't do it in order to be bragged on and boasted about. Oh, look, he, he, he's wealthy. She's wealthy. Look at how much they've given. No. They were self-centered individuals. And Jesus said, you've got to surpass in your righteousness and do more and far beyond what they are doing or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. I don't care how religious you are. Notice also, it must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is provided by God that is righteousness that, uh, that they give or the, uh, the, the offerings, the righteousness that he was talking about is provided by God and it comes to us through Christ. And there are three characteristics of that kind of righteousness. First of all, it's the inner. It's inner. It's on the inside. Theirs is external. This one is inner. And you remember the reference that I gave you is 1 Samuel 16, 7. This is when Samuel went down to the house of Jesse looking for a replacement for King Saul. And uh, the first person when he walked in the room and Saul was the oldest son of, of Jesse. And um, Samuel said, uh, oh, surely uh, this is the one that God is going to set aside to be the replacement for King Saul. And what does the Lord say? No, uh, he, he's not to be the replacement for King Saul. I don't judge a person by their outward appearance. I look upon the heart. You see, it's what's on the inside that counts. And so finally, through a process of elimination, uh, Jesse runs out of sons and Samuel says, well, do you have anybody else? And he said, well, I have the the runt of the litter. (laughs) He's back on the back 40. He's watching the sheep. Well, send for him. And when David walks in the house, immediately God says to him, rise up and anoint him. He is my chosen one. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks upon the inside. That's the difference between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness that God provides. Not only is it inner, but it's perfect. It's perfect. Matthew 5, 48 says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are. The Bible says that our righteousness, if we were to gather our righteousness around us, In the eyes of God, it would be as filthy rags. There's nothing that I am, nothing that I can do that can satisfy the righteous demands of God. And so it has to come through a transplant. By faith, I receive the righteousness of Christ. And so it it is the perfect righteousness that God puts inside of me. So it's inner, it's perfect, and then it's credited. It's credited. In the book of Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about Abraham. Oftentimes I'm I'm asked, how were the Old Testament people saved? Well, they were saved the same way that New Testament people are saved. And they were saved in the same way that you and I are saved. There are not two different ways to be saved. 
God doesn't have one set of rules and regulations for one group of people and a different set for another group of people. He doesn't say, well, you, you, you Old Testament people can be saved if you'll do these things, but the New Testament people and you and I, we have a different way for them. No. You read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews and you'll find a recurring theme and by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, those Old Testament people were redeemed and saved by the grace of Almighty God through faith the same way that you and I are. And so it says of Abraham that he believed, and the word believed is just another word for having faith. Abraham believed God and God put it on his account and gave him the credit for salvation. And you, you know, if you, if you work and you draw a salary and you get paid on payday and you take your your check to the bank and you deposit it and, and the, the bank teller writes it down and they, they put credit on your account, X number of dollars that you deposited there, gave you credit for it. And when Abraham believed God, not just mentally, but accepted him and committed himself to him, God wrote him down, I credit salvation and redemption and justification to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. David, all of those Old Testament people believed God and were saved and, and, and we do the same thing. And when you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, God just wrote down salvation credited to so-and-so. Salvation credited to Alan Reed. Salvation credited to you. Not because of who you are or what you've done and you deserve it and merit it. No, it's all by the grace of God. And he credits to you. He gives you the credit for it. You know, we're all sinful on the inside. And we've got to be changed on the inside. You know, here in East Texas, we live in logging country. You can travel just about any day down the highway going in and out of Nacogdoches and somewhere down the line, you're going to see a, a logging truck coming out of the woods and it is just loaded down with pine trees that have been cut and they're on their way to the sawmill. If you've ever cut down a tree and looked at the end of it or the stump of it, you know it has rings growth rings around them. And those growth rings, they're not perfect, you know, in, in circle inside. They're kind of wiggly, <laughs> they're, they're crooked. But you take that log down to the sawmill and put it on the, on the saw and then run the saw down one side of it and flip it over and run it down the side, flip it over, run it down that side and flip it on the fourth side and run it down that side and cut it all. When you get through, you've got a, a straight beam, a straight piece of wood. But you go down to the end of it and look at the same, at the end of it, those rings are still just as crooked as they've ever been. Nothing has been changed on the inside of that log, even though it's straight on the outside. And the same thing is true with you and me. We can be straight as an arrow, as we say, but on the inside be just as crooked and sinful as we've ever been. Did you ever bite into an apple and find a worm? The only thing worse than doing that is biting in an apple and finding half a worm. How did that worm get on the inside of that apple? Oh, you say, well, it bored its way in. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. The egg for that little worm was laid when that apple wasn't nothing more than a blossom. And when that blossom turned into an apple, that worm was already in there. And it bored its way out from the inside outward, never outward inward. You see, it's what's on the inside that counts. And your righteousness in the face of God is as filthy rags. 
Well, we must go on. First of all, what Jesus said about righteousness. Secondly, what Jesus said about murder. There's a difference between murder and killing. Okay, you need to understand that. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, the accurate literal translation is not you shall not, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. This commandment does not forbid all killing. The killing of animals is not forbidden. You know, you can eat a steak. You can shoot Bambi's mama and have sausage. You can, you can get a steak off a back strap. It's okay to kill an animal. And if you couldn't kill an animal, the Old Testament system of sacrifices would go out the window. You read the Old Testament, bring a calf, bring a sheep, bring a dove. What did they do with it? Slit its throat, shed its blood, put it on an altar, burned it, offered it to God as a sacrifice. A lamb offered as a sacrifice, telling Moses, tell the people, take a lamb, kill it, put the blood over the top of the post and on the sides. And when the death angel comes over, he sees the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So it's not prohibiting the killing of animals. And it's not forbidding capital punishment. Listen to this, Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Well, you say, Pastor, that's the Old Testament law. Yes, it is, but remember... You remember what Jesus said? I didn't come to do away with the law or to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses says that a Roman official does not carry a sword or a knife on his side for looks. It's not there for decoration. It's there for carrying out capital punishment on those who are guilty of such a, uh, such a crime that merits that. So you have no scriptural grounds to oppose capital punishment. It's there in the scriptures, in both the Old and in the New Testament. Then what does the commandment forbid? Well, homicide. Homicide is murder. Thou shalt not commit murder. And God help us, America has become the murder capital of the world. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Infanticide. It clearly forbids infanticide. What is infanticide? That's the killing of little babies. Another term we would use is abortion. Oh, God help us. We, we, we kill, we murder about a million babies a year in America. No wonder we're under the judgment of God. I believe it was Ruth Graham who made the comment before she died that if God doesn't punish America for what they've done, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We kill babies right and left every day, a million a year, infanticide. And it's no longer just, just in the first few weeks or first few months of, of their conception, late term, when the little heart's already there and the little body is developing, folks, that's a, that's a human being. I think we're aborting the wrong people. I think we need to abort the Supreme Court. Amen. 
what Jesus said about righteousness, what Jesus said about murder, what Jesus said about anger. In discussing murder, our Lord went behind the act of murder to the attitude that leads to murder. There was a little boy who was doing his homework and he asked his dad, Dad, what causes people to go to war? Why do people kill each other? Well, his father said, son, it's like this. In World War I, the Germans invaded Belgium and, and about that time, the mother walked in the room. She was drying her hands from having done the dishes. She interrupted, no, that's not the way it happened. Here's the way that the war got started. And she proceeded to say, and the father spoke up and said, look, do you want to answer his questions or am I supposed to answer his questions? Did he ask you or did he ask me? And besides that, you don't know anything about the war. Why don't you butt out of this conversation? She said, what do you mean I don't know anything about it? She threw her dish towel on the floor, turned around and slammed the door. You could hear her rattling the dishes as she was trying to put them back in the cabinet. The father looked over at his son and said, now son, let me tell you how wars got started. His son said, no thanks dad, I think I already know. Three things quickly, my time's up, but I'm gonna finish this, all right? First of all, there's caustic anger, caustic. You know, the Bible says in the New King James Version, it says, if, if, if it's okay to be angry, but it's a sin when you are angry at somebody without a just cause. If you don't have a just reason, a proper reason for being angry at something that has happened, and you're angry without a cause, then you've sinned. Thirdly, or secondly, contemptuous anger, or raka, or raka, raka. What does raka mean? He said, if you say raka, well, it, it's, it's hard to come up with an English translation, but the word, when you, when you say to a person raka, it says, you are of no value. You are worthless. You're never going to amount to anything. You're speaking then the attitude and tone of what Raqqa is. Racial prejudice falls into this category. When you have an air of superiority and you're a white person and you're superior to everybody else, it's a sin. And so if you say to a person, uh, you're worthless, uh, this contemptuous anger, Raqqa, would also be used in a court of law. And you get upset and you start showing disrespect to the judge and the jury and the whole court system. The judge beats his uh, anvil on the, on the desk and he says, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. You're disrespectful. And when you are disrespectful, whether it's in a court of law or anywhere to an individual, then you're guilty of this sin of Raqqa. And then thirdly, there's the condemning anger where he says, you fool. You say to a person, you fool. Now, Jesus is not talking about somebody doing something foolish. The word fool here means that you're godless and wicked. You're godless and, 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 and you're just wicked. And, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just wrong. Now, now, quickly, I know my time is up, but bear with me for a moment. I don't have but about 20 more minutes. Take, take your Bible quickly and turn to Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians. I want to show you something. The fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians and verse 31. Ephesians 4.31. Ephesians 4.31, look at 
lays out for you the step by step by step that leads to murder. Ephesians 4.31. There's one, two, three, four, five, six words here. Number one is bitterness. He says, let all bitterness. Now, what is bitterness? Bitterness. Well, bitterness is a feeling of resentment that settles down in your heart when you feel somebody has done you wrong. And you get resentful and you begin to brood and to pout and you're bitter. The second word is wrath. This comes from a word in the Greek language that means to burn. It just means that you're, you're, you're smoldering on the inside, just like uh, uh, smoldering rags. You put rags that maybe got uh, gasoline or some combustible uh, fluid on it and, and you just put it over the side and, and, and it just sits there and smolders. It just burns. The word anger is like when you open the closet door and all of that smoldering rags suddenly burst into flame. Suddenly burst into flame. The word clamor, loud talking. You raise your voice, you shout, you cry, you quarrel in public. The word slander is evil speaking. You say things that you ought not to say. You say to your child, you're never going to amount to anything. You say to your wife, I'm sorry I ever married you. You say to your brother, I wish you were dead. You say terrible, horrible, hateful, hellish things. It's slandering a person. The last one is the word malice. The word malice is doing something evil and hurtful. Malice is what leads to murder. When you say those mean and hurtful things, then you have a desire to reach out and strike somebody, to hurt someone, to hit someone, to kill someone. You're very much aware of the recent death down in Fort Hood of um, the, the specialist, the Army specialist, uh, Ivan Lopez who took a pistol on campus at Fort Hood and used it to kill three people, uh, three other soldiers, and wounded 16 before he turned it on himself and committed suicide. I've been keeping up with it, and one of the articles that I found just, just, uh, uh, just yesterday, the title is, Fort Hood Shooter Had a Fight Over Leave Request. There seems to be, and I'm quoting this individual who's a spokesman for Fort Hood, there was an army dispute, an angry dispute, excuse me, an angry dispute over a leave request. Lopez had gone into the office and requested a leave of absence to take care of a family matter. And it says, after a meeting where he had sought a leave to attend to family matters, he was agitated, disrespectful when his request request was denied Fort Hood officials and a spokesman for the army investigators confirmed that Lopez was angry with the soldiers who were in his unit he was what he was angry he was agitated he turned hateful and mean and murderous and it all began with anger 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 led to murder Oh, pastor, I'd never commit a murder like that. Oh, don't be so sure. You're not as righteous as you think you are. You don't know what you'd do until you find yourself in a similar situation. You get angry. You get bitter. It smolders on the inside of you, and it begins to burn, and all of a sudden it just erupts. 
before you know it, you start saying things and doing things that under normal situations you'd never do. Never do. Quickly, let's move to the last idea, and that is what Jesus said about reconciliation. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, and he says, if you are in a worship service, and he says, uh, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that you have something against, uh, your brother has something against you, you to leave your offering there and go to your brother and you get, get reconciled. Try to, try to resolve this thing. If Lopez had just, of course, I know that he was under some type of psychiatric care. They're not diagnosed him completely, but, and, I, and, and certainly I know that there are times, you know, mental illness, you know, can cause us to do things. We're not talking about that. He said, if you come to the worship of God and you know that you are at odds with a brother because of something they said to you, did to you, and you're holding a grudge, it's going to interfere with your worship of God. What did Jesus say the two greatest commandments of all was? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one likewise, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Other than the sin of pride and disobedience, do you know what the next sin was committed in the book of Genesis? When Cain rose up and in anger killed his brother wasn't reconciled to him jealous of him hated him despised him oh your offering was accepted mine was rejected I'll kill you so he says you know I, I, I want you to think you know you might want in your mind think about kid I'd rather you think about it than to actually do it don't don't take your life my life but Jesus said that's where it all starts it starts in your heart, in your heart. It's what's on the inside that counts. And so he said, you, you leave your offering there and you go get straightened out with your brother. You, if, he, if he hasn't come to you, you go to him. You initiate it. You do everything within your power to get right with your brother. Oftentimes they have people say, well, what, you know, I've, I've done everything I know. I've gone to them. I've talked to them. I've pled with them. What do you do? Well, it's kind of like, Playing tennis. If you're the server, it's your responsibility to get the ball over the net. But once it goes over the net, it ceases to be your responsibility. Now it becomes that other person's responsibility to get it back to you. You do everything you can. Paul says, as much as possible, live at peace with one another. So give it an effort. Never know till you try. But then not only does it affect uh, your, your worship with God, but again... It affects your relationship with other people, with other people. Now, in conclusion, notice he said, unless, unless, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the only way that it can get better for you is through a transplant of the righteousness of Jesus Christ into your heart. That's what it's all about, folks. That's what it's all about. The Bible says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. You want to meet all the requirements of God? You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's your answer. There's your answer. One of my favorite songs, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground. Is sinking sand. All of it. May we bow together. Oh, Father, forgive us for the times that we've been presumptuous and arrogant and proud and boastful about the kind of people we are. Oh, we may not go around with a neon light flashing on and off saying, look at me. We, we may give a facade. We, we may give the appearance outwardly that everything is right with us and other people and especially with you when in reality, it's not. May we not fall to the deceptive tactics of the devil to deceive us into thinking that everything is okay if we just keep the law. We are rotten on the inside and we need to admit it that we don't measure up to your righteousness, Lord. And we are helpless to do anything about it except to trust Jesus. And if there's someone here today who for the first time in their lives under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God realizes their need to, to trade their unrighteousness with the righteousness of Jesus, Oh, Holy Spirit of God, lead them. Lead them to Jesus. And give them the courage to step out and to come forward and to make it public so that we can rejoice with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? And if God is speaking to your heart today, come.